bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. Today, I'm speaking with Deborah Nussbaum. She is the Senior Director for Behavioral Health over at Optum. As most people are aware, Optum is the behavioral health wing of United Healthcare. Before we get into the conversation with her, I want to hear from our sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. If you don't know the CEO of ERP Health, Eric Greminger, I highly recommend getting to know him. He is just a fabulous advocate for the field and for patient outcomes tracking. He's everywhere. He does a lot of work with the government. He does a lot of work with uh, health plans and officials and, and just communities and trying to raise awareness around the need for SUD and behavioral health services, in particular related to patient outcomes tracking. So highly, highly recommend reaching out to him on uh, LinkedIn or through other means. So I really appreciate Deb coming on. Uh, she's got a lot on her plate, so I'm always highly appreciative when she takes the time to connect with me or other providers and just help us all learn how we can elevate and improve patient care while ideally reducing barriers, reducing costs at the same time. So we'll answer all the questions that most providers have. What is Optum looking for when it's looking at in-network contracts? How are we thinking about value-based care? What are some red flags that uh, would maybe cause uh, Optum or perhaps another health plan to avoid working with a particular facility? So lots of just super helpful information. Even though I'm technically on the marketing side of things, most of the time I find it just extremely valuable to have relationships and understand what's happening from a health plan or a payer perspective, because this is ultimately what drives the care that's being delivered within the facilities that we operate in. And I just think it's so important to both work together so that we can help each other uh, improve patient care and improve outcomes. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to have further collaborations. It's, it's one of the reasons that I ran the executive roundtable a couple months ago is this, this goal of bringing together providers from across different service lines as well as uh, health plans so that we can talk about improving patient care while reducing barriers and how we can do that together because ultimately working together is the best opportunity we have for everyone to achieve their goals. And you know, at times there's always gonna be tension here or there as maybe we have competing priorities in some respects, but our main goals of supporting patients in their care is 100% aligned. And so I'm always very appreciative of the fact that lots of health plans are very, very willing to connect and help us understand what we can do to work together. And that's part of what Deb is coming on to help share today. So with that, let's jump in. Thanks, Deb. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast here. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Optum? Sure. Um, I report into our chief medical officer, Dr. Martin Rosenzweig. He is the chief medical officer of behavioral health services at Optum. Optum being the behavioral health arm of United Healthcare. And how long have you been with the company now? I've been with Optum for 14 years. I started out as a clinical director in one of the large service centers, and my current role is I lead national substance use disorder strategy. So everything related to substance use disorder services rolls up through me. It's a lot on your plate there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so, I mean, a lot of the listeners of the audience here are people that own treatment providers or executives at some of the larger providers. Working on the payer end, you know, what are some things that you'd like to communicate to SUD providers? That's a great question. I think the providers are would be very interested to know that we, my team, are all providers at one time in our careers. I worked for 10 years in New York uh, for the office. Uh, it's now called Oasis. Back when I worked, it was actually DSAS, the uh, Division of Substance Use, Substance Abuse Services. My team, I, I have uh, about nine to 10 addiction docs on my team across the entire country. And we're, we're the SUD team. We do everything for SUD services. We are, um, the doctors are all board certified in addiction medicine and, you know, in, in the various specialties. And we all come from the, from the provider community. Many of us sit on, on ASAM. Um, I'm, I'm actually, um, I'm on a number of committees at the ACE, at the national ASAM level and I also am on the FSAM, which is the Florida Society of Addiction Medicine. So I think that treatment centers have a misconception that we're, you know, that we're not clinical folk. We are, we are all clinical folks. In fact, um, I was an addiction counselor uh, before even um, finalizing my advanced degrees. And then I, maybe something that might be helpful too is there's sometimes kind of uh, divisions within the organizations between contracting and then the what you oversee or, or how does that connect? Do you oversee contracting? Is there a difference there? Can you help kind of clarify that? Sure. So I chair a committee that pre-vets facility-based programming before it could go into contracting. So network contracting is a very important function because they're the, they're the folks that deal with the money. We don't deal with the money, but we deal with the clinical programming. So if you are looking to join our network, you submit an application, that application goes to a clinical subcommittee depending on your provider type. As an example, we have a substance use disorder uh, clinical vetting. We have eating disorder. We have child and adolescent services or what we call CAP programming. So all of those applications are pre-vetted before it can move into contracting. When it goes into contracting, we're the committee that says, yes, this is an ASAM level 2.5 or 3.1 or 3.7. So that gives network the, uh, th that way network knows what levels of care uh, the facility is offering and that we will offer a contract for. Okay. And then what are some specific things that you're looking for when you're contracting with a, a provider? Are there specifications that they need to have before you're open to building a, an in-network contract with them? Yeah, and it's at the highest level and what matches on the medical side, you know, related to mental health parity is we're looking for accreditation and what type of accreditation your organization has. Are you a JCO accredited? Are you CARF accredited? ASAM also offers a level of care certification at the residential level. So are you CARF ASAM level of care certified for 373531? We also do a deeper dive into have we been paying your entity as an out-of-network provider? If so, we have a dashboard on you. How many out-of-network claims, how many members have you seen of ours out-of-network? And what are your quality metrics? What are your outcomes? How are you doing seeing our members out-of-network? And we also look at, at, at those metrics. And then we also look at your billing patterns and are your billing patterns aligned with other programs in the area for the services that you're rendering. 
We also look at, are you offering any specialty programs that we might need in the network? Um, LGBTQ plus programming, programming for, um, are you are you part of the HIMSS program for pilots or do you do first responder care? So we also we also vet the specialty services that your that your program might be offering. Uh, it's super interesting. So with like the LGBTQ plus programming, for example, do you also have specific criteria in there? Correct. Yeah, what we would what we would want to see is we would want to see how your LGBTQ plus programming differs from your general programming. Is it a discrete program? Is it just a treatment track? Or do you just have a therapist that's LGBTQ identified and that's the and that's the programming? So it's really we're looking at the level of the specialty. Okay. Yeah. Cause I've seen a, a mix across providers, you know, some are real in depth with specific programming and clinical matrix built around it. And then some, you know, like you said, are more just, just the fact that they maybe have a therapist on staff. You mentioned the outcomes. What can you talk about specific outcomes that you guys look at? What are some of the um, specific things that you might look at for a provider when you're seeing if they're, you know, kind of falling within your quality metrics? Sure. So, most common and what you often see on medical is readmission. Um, and I talk a lot about medical because we have to align to parity and we're making, we always have to make sure that what we're doing on behavioral, we're not being more restrictive than on medical. So we look at readmission rates and normally under medical services, they look at seven day and at 30 day with substance use disorders or eating disorders for that matter. We look at readmission rates at 30 days, at 90 days, and even at 180 days. We also look at step-down care. When the person left the facility, what was the next level of care that they went to, that they engaged with? Also, with opioid treatment services, as it is today with fentanyl and opioid overdoses, we're also looking at the level of medication, MOUD, follow-up post-discharge, even post-detox. De- post is the person getting MAT after they leave the program? And to, what, and, and to what extent? What percentage are on MAT when they leave the program? And then how adherent are those members post-discharge? We also look at factors related to time like when from the time they walked out the door to the time they were seen at the next appointment um, how long how long did that take um, and those are those are pretty standard HEDIS measures you know for for post-discharge follow-up care so those are just some of the the higher the higher level ones I think one other one that I find really important is AMA uh, discharges how many people complete the program and how many people leave against medical advice? Sure. And when you're talking about that connection to MAT services or step down levels of care, um, do you guys have a preference whether that's in the same continuum with the same provider or to another provider? Does it matter on your end? No, it, it really it really doesn't matter because some some folks prefer to uh, leave, you know, leave and go to away for care. Um, so they might go to care in another state. So we're looking at just making sure that the member followed up with step-down care. You know, residential treatment is not a one and done. We expect that when you leave a 24-7 level of care, that you're going to have a transition, uh, a transition maybe through IOP to outpatient or um, to, you know, from residential to an MOUD program, you know, an OBOT program or, or the like. So those are the services that, that we're looking to make sure that is occurring. So from your end, providers would definitely be best served if they had very clear discharge protocols around not just making recommendations to the patients, but actually facilitating that connection to the step-down level Setting of care. it up, doing that follow-up to make sure that the member made it to care, 
I've also been seeing that a lot of our larger treatment programs uh, that that are in other states, they do online, you know, with everything being virtual these days, they're doing um, continued online support groups or they have peer follow-up post-discharge. And those are the programs that are that are very successful because the member is still feeling connected to treatment, even though they've left the physical building. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And then we were talking at the round table a couple of weeks ago with, you know, members from Cigna and Anthem around the localization of care. I mean, do you want to make any comments around how you guys perceive, you know, if someone's going to wait a residential, do you want links back to the local community? Do you have any um, perspective on continuing care in a location outside of their home? The, so we've been tracking on the phenomenon of what we call destination care for a number of years. And unfortunately, we see poor treatment outcomes when people go away for care. And the and we've done some really deep dives into it. And I know my colleagues at the other plans have as well, because we've talked about this. If the member is not connected back to a recovery environment in their home community, they're not going to be successful because what's going to happen is they're going to leave, uh, and I'm just going to pick a state, they're going to leave Texas, they're going to go back to Massachusetts, they're not going to know anybody that's new in recovery, they're not going to be connected to a home group or to a sponsor or even to a treatment program, and they're not going to continue care. They don't. They felt, okay, I was in Texas for, you know, 20, 30, 40 days, whatever. Now I'm home. I'm done. I understand what I need to do. I can manage. Rather than, let's say they were treated in Massachusetts, they're connected to a program, they're connected to their therapist, and then their therapist guides them to IOP or outpatient group or connects them with a sponsor. It's different when you're not in the community. I think there's also a, a connection between physical care and mental health care and addiction treatment care, right? And mm-hmm. when you're not involved in that local community, you're not able to connect those care providers in more of a wraparound type support Absolutely. service. Yeah. Absolutely. And then on the MAT thing, because we've talked about this before, so I just want to maybe if you want to make some comments on the uh, trend of especially some of the Florida providers to start providing like marijuana assisted treatment. <laughs> Oh, um, that's, that's a big, that's a, the, the big sigh. Um, the medical marijuana and the states that have these medical marijuana laws are, you know, they're, they're using medical marijuana to lure patients to care. ACM, there's no, uh, there's no professional organization that endorses medical marijuana as part of a treatment program for SUD. And we have to go with what the evidence and what the science says. So their medical marijuana is not covered by any insurance plan, nor is it evidence-based to be offered during the course of a treatment program. Um, so we're very, we're very strict on that uh, because we've seen uh, some entities, especially in, in, in states that have these laws, say, oh, you come to our treatment program, we're going to get you a medical marijuana card. Well, you know, to some, that sounds very attractive. Okay, I'm going to have to give up cocaine, but hey, I'm going me- to get medical marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, isn't, have, did you watch the, um, the investigation commission for the New Jersey that was going on with the treatment providers up there by chance? Oh, no, no. Should I? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I'll send it to you. Uh, but I was kind of curious, you know, because I think that's something, you know, obviously running a marketing company that we talk to providers a lot about is you want to be leading with the quality of your care, right? Mm-hmm. And there is sometimes a tendency for providers to lead with other things, right? Whether it's the amenities or the proximity to a beach or, you know, the food that's being offered. And obviously that stuff has value to patients, right? And it's important. And obviously motivation is also important for people in treatment. But, you know, how do you guys look at it or do you guys have any comments around the messaging that you see coming from providers and what they emphasize when they're talking to patients about potentially seeking care? 
And, and you're, you're, you're spot on with that, Nick. Um, when we get applications from at programs that are currently not in our network and we're vetting them, one thing that we do all the time is we go to their website and we never see their outcomes being specified on the website. What we see is chef-inspired meals or yoga on the beach, paddleboarding, all that's very attractive, but not what you're looking for in a treatment program. If we think about substance use disorder, like we think about other chronic diseases like cancer or um, uh, you know, kidney disease or infertility issues, when you're looking for a treatment program, you're looking for the success and the outcomes of the, of the treatment. You're not looking for the, you know, come to this cancer treatment program because we're going to feed you really well. And that's the difference with substance use disorder. And we, we often talk about stigma and how substance use disorders are handled differently. And that's one glaring aspect is when you're looking for a treatment program, you're really looking for the, the site and not the service. Um, and, and that's very very, very disappointing to us. And that's why we're really trying to promote programs that have proven treatment outcomes. Yeah, 100%. And then related to that, I mean, so you mentioned yoga, for example, and you know, a lot of programs have art therapy, music therapy, equine therapy. How do you see that those kind of extracurricular therapeutic activities in terms of integration and insurance reimbursement? I, they're they're fine and they're and they're great because someone can't be in clinical care, you know, twenty four seven. And if you're going to have someone in a twenty four seven setting, you absolutely need to have healthy recreational activities that the person can engage in. Yes, the person needs to understand that they can have fun and not be high. So I I totally support that, but. It can't be the majority of the services that's being rendered to that member in a given treatment day, that there has to be more clinical than recreational services. So that's, um, that's where when we do our vettings of programs, we often see, uh, you know, very common ones. I see yoga, meditation, art therapy, journaling, homework. Um, rather than, you know, group therapy, individual therapy, the family therapy, psychoeducation, like we, we see more recreational than anything else. And those are the types of programs that we're not going to offer a contract to. And you mentioned family there. This has always been kind of a sticking point, I think, or, or a trouble point to work around is obviously family integration is really valuable. And there's dynamics in the family that often need support, but it's difficult kind of from an insurance standpoint, right? Because it's the individual and their policy that's seeking care. How do you think about family integration? How do you think about reimbursement on that end? Is that part of a program that you look for as them involving the family in some way, shape or form? We do. We do require ASAM. ASAM also requires in, in, in the ASAM criteria, family is a critical component. So when we are vetting a, a program and its services, we're looking to the extent of the family involvement in treatment. We always see, especially in residential care, family visitation, right? Saturdays or Sundays, you know, there's a three-hour block for family visitation. But what we often don't see is the family group, the family education, the family dynamic uh, family therapy, where you're going to be able to work out with the member before they return to the family, you know, what needs to change, what's going to be different. You treat a member, you treat a person or a young person, especially in isolation, you put them back into the same family. The dynamic of the family is just going to adjust right back to where it was, and you're going to start all over again. You have to make critical changes in the family system for the treatment to be successful. Yeah, definitely. And then we're, you're, we're kind of talking about these extracurricular programs and longer term, which is referencing residential or PHP more so than anything. 
but really the vast majority of patients that seek care for SUD are going into lower levels of care. So how do you think about the service and the continuum of care provided by a particular organization? How do you look at your member volume going into different levels of care? Well, everything is, everything is going to be based upon the ACM criteria. However, what we see in the commercial population is that people tend not to deal with their substance use until something happens. There's a trigger point, a DUI, a, you know, an, an event, a job, a job loss, or a spouse giving you an ultimatum. And normally when it gets to that point, we see people tending to go to the higher levels of care. They need to get out of the environment. They need to, they need to go someplace for care. And most of our substance use disorder admissions are based upon a trigger event, um, even, even for detox. After the higher levels of care, people tend to step down through to, you know, IOP or even just regular outpatient care. And we do see people staying in intensive outpatient, you know, much, much longer, or they come into outpatient, they think they can handle it, they leave, then they might need to come back to a more intensive level of care. Um, and it could happen a number of times. But it's, it's fascinating that you're ten, you tend to come into substance use treatment due to due to some some event some triggering event and what about like length of stay so you know often when i'm talking to providers sometimes on, on the payer side they have the concern saying hey I'm, I'm not getting enough days or whatever it is but my response is often that most of when i'm talking to you guys you're more than happy to pay for treatment it's just not necessarily residential treatment for six months you're looking more for residential for a certain amount of time and then long-term outpatient or long-term follow-up. You kind of want to make any comments around length of stay and then how you see that from a step-down perspective? Sure. Um, programs that advertise a fixed length of stay are not going to be offered a contract to come into our network. There is something that is some legacy folklore in the substance use treatment world that you need to be in a, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, 30-day program, 30-day program. Like there's some magic about a 30-day program. Basically, 30-day programs were used to be what the extent of the benefit paid. Like when uh, in the early days of insurance, we had 30-day residential, either annual or one lifetime. So 30-day programs were born. But ASAM says that programs need to be variable length based upon the member's treatment needs, symptoms, goals, etc. And it needs to be individualized. Length of stay is very personal depending on what the person is bringing to treatment. Someone that has had multiple treatment times, right? They've gone through treatment a number of times. They're bringing a different perspective than that person who's coming into treatment for the first time. So we, we don't have any type of benchmarks on level of stay because it does vary, but 30, 60, 90 day programs um, very often, families will call us and they'll say, oh, we want a long-term residential for our son. Uh, we, need, we need at least a 90-day program. Even families are buying into that fixed-length model. And again, with parity and with medical services, there, there, is, no, there is no standard. Um, you don't say, hey, I'm looking for a 30-day program for cancer. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. You get the level of care that you need, and then you slowly integrate back into your community, um, and you, you do that transition back to home and community. And away from the cloistered setting of a residential treatment program. What about, so 
we talked a little bit about readmissions and obviously relapse is part of addiction um, for many people's recovery journey. How do you look at that readmission in terms of, do you, do you care if they go back into the same program? Are you saying, hey, that program maybe didn't work as well for you as it could have, try a different program? Do you guys have any thoughts around that? Well, there are some programs that have certain specialties, alcohol, you know, versus stimulants um, versus, a, you know, a young person's program. We, what we don't like to see is when people treatment hop, when they go from program to program to program to program. We have, um, you know, what they used to call the Florida shuffle is where someone would enter a treatment program in Florida and then shuffle through all of these other out-of-network programs. That to us is a red flag that something's not right. Now, if someone made an earnest try at treatment and it didn't, it didn't take hold, could have been they weren't ready for treatment. I, I don't really endorse that the program wasn't right, but if they want to try a different programs, we, we can say, okay, well, here's a program that has very good treatment outcomes for a 23 year old that's using alcohol, cannabis, and cocaine. Like we, we have that data, but I don't endorse people going from program to program to program to program. That's, that's just killing time. And they're, they're really not reaping the benefit of treatment. I'm curious, you know, obviously programs ask about centers of excellence. I know you guys have that program as well. You know, when you, do you share that information with the program? Do you say, hey, you know, just wanted to talk to you guys and give you a heads up that you seem to be doing very well with 23-year-olds oh, yeah. cocaine? <laughs> so you do, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, no, they, we, we do. Because when a program reaches the level, and we don't call it centers of excellence because that is a medical term, and centers of excellence come with travel and lodging benefits on medical. So we call them the platinum preferred protocol. So when a program reaches a platinum status with us, they become self-managed. So what that means is we don't manage them. They call us at admission. They call us at discharge. And we're confident that they're doing everything right for that member during the course of the stay, including determining level of care, and that that member is going to be transitioned to another appropriate level of care, whether in their system or out of their system. And they do all of the necessary follow-up steps. So those, those protocols are in place so that we can really devote our time to the program's that struggle in network or out of network programs that really don't know our benefits and our, and our protocols. Hmm, sure. All right. And then we were, we were kind of talking about this continuum of care and length of stay, which leads into uh, value-based care perspective. So when you guys are looking at value-based care, how are you thinking about that? Is that something that you're really encouraging providers to look at? Is it something that you're still building data on? So there's so we have two we have two different types of value-based programs. The first type of value-based program is what we call an alternative payment model, where we reimburse the provider for a particular time frame. Um, and it, it, it could also be uh, known as a case rate, where we're not managing the provider by level of care but we're paying the provider an agreed upon flat rate and they manage the member for a particular time frame. That's considered a value-based contract because some members are going to need more, some members are going to be, need less. The provider knows for every Optum member that walks through their door how much they're going to get paid. The second type of value-based contract is actually a financial incentive. So with that, we have to have experience on the provider and we look at their experience over time and we say, okay, your readmission rate in this particular market is 15%. 
if you bring your readmission rate down to 10% next year, we're going to give you a savings because you're actually saving us money of, you know, let's say a $2,500 bonus. So that's a, that's a different type of arrangement, um, both, both value-based where we're looking at metrics and we're saying, do you think you could change this metric? And if so, we'll, we'll give you this amount of money. You know, we, we split the, we split the savings. We have on Optum a lot of, um, we have a lot of alternative payment models, and we also have a lot of those value-based incentives. The value-based incentives are more on ambulatory services, longer-term care services, and um, the alternative payment modeling is on both higher level and lower levels of care. Okay, and then to clarify for that second one on the value-based care model, you said that they have to be in network with you already. You have to have a certain amount of data with them before you would explore exactly. that contract. Okay. Exactly. You can't, you can't create a value when you don't know what the history is. Yeah. And then maybe a, a related question there is sometimes when I'm talking to an out-of-network provider, they'll say, well, one of the reasons that we're trying to stay out-of-network is because we, we believe in a particular approach. We think it works and we're not able to get reimbursed enough for it on an in-network contract or something. So they could explore a value-based care model, for example. But the question is, are there, are there specific features of a program that you think uh, deliver more value to your members? And so an example would be like some programs will say, well, we have PhD certified addictionologists or we patients see the psychiatrist every day. So we should get reimbursed more for that. When you get those comments, are there specific things that you guys know from your own data sets that say, yes, this is a value add and no, this really isn't? Well, interestingly enough, it's not on the professional services. It's on the non-professional services that we see that. For years, commercial, commercial health plans couldn't cover peer services. We can't cover coaching. We can't cover case management. So in these value-based bundled contracts, we can because we're we're rolling the services into a into a professional contract with a reimbursement code we've found that there is significant value in the use of peers and in substance use treatment so many of our value-based arrangements are including those non-traditional peer recovery uh, peer counselors, um, even doing the follow-up services. Case management is huge. Helping people kind of negotiate their life through, you know, through case management and offering, offering them and their families, for that matter, um, case management support and reimbursing that to, to the providers is huge. So that's really interesting. So that peer support follow-up kind of long-term connection and family wraparound services, you've seen that to be more valuable than maybe the, the degree of the professional in the residential or exactly. IOP program. Exactly, right. It, it, that's exactly right. Like we, we know that the residential setting, look, you have, a, you have someone that's, that, that's in a residential setting, you have them 24-7. You're going to, you're going to give them your services and you're going to deliver and who's delivering your services. The proof, the, the pudding proof is really when the member steps out of your treatment program and is reintegrating into the community. Are they taking the tools that you gave them home and into the community where all of the, where all of the triggers are, where, where their friends were, where they used and, offering that support reaching into the home and offering even that that support at a community level an in-person community-based level is critical because there's going to be temptations out there you're not going to have the temptation while you're in a 24 7 setting 
Definitely. And then, yeah, I mean, for on my end, I think there's a, a huge benefit to life skills as well. I mean, a lot of uh, individuals struggle with simple things like cooking or cleaning or, you know, getting a job, yeah. retaining that job. And so I, I like the value-based care arrangement because then you're able to start including some of those services that are definitely going to help the person once they're outside on top of all the, the clinical services and therapy that they're getting. That's exactly right. And even, you know, even paying for those educational vocational evaluations for people that really, you know, lost their way and don't know what they want to be when they grow up. So even offering those, those basic, you know, educational vocational assessments is critical. It's huge. Yeah. And then uh, we're talking about the value-based care here, something that, you know, as we've talked about this, a lot of providers will say, well, you know, do you know how to get in these contracts or how do we talk to payer representatives? But I, I think something that uh, a lot of providers maybe don't realize is you have to have a certain level of a member base to really, you know, start engaging in a lot of these contracts. You know, if you're a 20 bed or a 50 bed one off, there's not a whole lot of value on your end to necessarily putting in the work for special arrangements, right? Whereas if you've got a thousand beds across the country, that's a different discussion. Absolutely. You know, we, we want to bring local programs into the network. We have a broad network. We do have very good programs in the network and our in-network programs are struggling with losing members to out of network destination programs. And I'm going to use an example in New York. In New York, I hear from my in-network programs all the time. And they're like, we're struggling here to get members. We know you have millions of members in New York, and I do. Then how come my beds aren't full? How come you're letting, this is what they say to me, how come <laughs> you're letting so many people go to Florida? And I'm like, I'm not letting them. They have out of network benefits and they can choose to use them. So if another program opens up in New York and I bring them into the network, my network programs that are already suffering in New York are, you know, that that's not going to be acceptable to them. So um, I, I really look at utilization. I look at geo access now, if someone's opening a specialty program in New York that I don't have, I'll absolutely, you know, consider to bring them in network. But if I have available beds and programs that are longstanding programs that have been in our network that are suffering, um, then no, there, there's no need for another program that's going to have empty beds sitting open. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Really helpful. What about this other aspect of continuing care on digital therapeutics? So we talked about this a bit at the round table and it's a, it's kind of a big and somewhat confusing topic just because there's so many out there. So how are you approaching digital therapeutics for SUD at Optum? Another great, another really great question. So digital therapeutics are actually a pharmacy benefit because they have to be prescribed. And there are digital therapeutics for many different um, diseases, not just uh, not just substance use disorder. In fact, I'm, I'm uh, vetting one right now for uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Basic the, the basic premise is digital therapeutics are under the specialty pharmacy benefit. And it is the specialty pharmacy carrier, which is normally your medical plan, that is going to have to decide to add it to the formulary and cover it. We, on the behavioral side, can suggest to the specialty pharmacy division, yes, this is a worthwhile uh, add to the, to the formulary, but it's the specialty pharmacy that's going to have to pay for it. So there has to be really good proven data that the digital therapeutic, which is an adjunct to treatment, it's not treatment, it's an adjunct to treatment, is going to bring around a better outcome. Now, the outcome might be on behavioral, 
right? It might be, a, you know, like with an opioid uh, solution, it might be a better outcome for opioid treatment. So behavioral is going to see the value, but specialty pharmacy is going to have to pay out. And it's going to be on the medical carrier side to do that. So there's a little bit of a complicating factor with PDTs, but um, we're looking at a number of them right now. And we're, I mean, we want to do a pilot to, to prove it out, but we need our, we need our specialty pharmacy vendor to, um, to kind of collaborate with us on that. Well, I'm glad you bring that up. It's probably worth clarifying for some of the listeners out there. So inside the insurance organizations, you have separate divisions, right? And you've got behavioral SUD, you've got medical, you've got pharmacy, and, and those are pretty separate, right? Organizationally. They're very separate. Yes, they're there. And we're, you know, Optum has Optum RX, right? That's our pharmacy. That's where, you know, if you're, if you're a Optum, uh, if you're at United Healthcare, for the most part, if you're United Healthcare Medical, you'll have OptumRx on pharmacy, but not necessarily because some customers might have Aetna Medical, CVS Pharmacy, Optum for behavioral health services. So three different three different vendors could be at play, or you could have United Healthcare with a Express Scripts, and then optum behavioral um so we're we're all sold as standalone entities you can have a united healthcare plan and you can have an optum rx for your benefit uh, for your pharmacy and you can have optum behavioral um so those are those are three very different programs being being sold independent of one another yeah, and to provide some further detail there, let's say I'm an MAT provider and I wanted to provide like Hep C um, services inside, that would actually kind of go through these the separate department or separate division rather. That than would the go through home. the medical, yeah. correct? So whoever the member's medical carrier is, you would need a contract to provide the Hep C or HIV services. Um, from from that contract, whereas behavioral would cover all of the you know services related to the uh, you know opioid treatments. Yeah, yeah. So definitely confusing for providers out there, but I think it's helpful for them to know that they have to kind of go through these different departments because sometimes they think it's all under one. And yeah, I know I have that a lot with um, my the poor pain management folks <laughs> uh, where they're where they're doing both pain management and MOUD treatment, uh, they need a dual contract. They need a contract with medical and behavioral. I mean, it, it, you know, it would be so much easier to just pay under a single contract, but my company, behavioral, we're not paid for any behavior, any medical diagnoses. So uh, if we're paying claims on pain management, we're actually losing money. And whoever the medical vendor is, you know, is making money because they're getting paid, but they're not paying any claims on it. So it uh, yes, it, it is a kind of um, uh, something confusing for providers, especially when we tell them, no, you're going to have to get these services contracted with United Healthcare. Well, I thought you're in United Healthcare. <laughs> well, we're a division of. But yes, very confusing. Uh, all right. And then, so on the helpful side, something you guys have that's new that's coming out is like a provider portal, uh, specifically for UR and related requests. Do you want to talk through that a little bit? Oh, I'm sure I'm going to plug, I'm going to plug star UM. So star smart technology authorization request. And what it is, is a portal where providers can submit for authorization for services that require prior authorization. So it's faster, it's simple, it's streamlined. You can go on the portal anytime you want, so you're not sitting on hold. It's going to ask you a number of diagnostically relevant questions about symptoms and severity and risk and the proposed treatment plan to address the symptoms, the severity, and the risk. 
And what we've done is we've programmed into STAR ASAM criteria and the LOCUS criteria and the CAL-LOCUS criteria, all the national criteria that we use. And if all of the information is contained, then you will get an authorization issued at, at that time. If there is additional information needed or um, there's something that wasn't clear, there's actually a chat functionality built into the STAR platform where there's kind of a real-time exchange of uh, questions and additional clinical information. And you can also request a telephonic uh, callback. So if you're, if you're not clear on something, you could say, hey, can you have someone call me? And then we will, uh, one of the clinical team will, will call out. So STAR is for our network facilities. So big advantage there for going to network is streamlining that process. Correct. Correct. And then on your end, you were talking about some billing practices earlier and things like that. But also, I, I think one thing I talk to providers about is, you know, obviously there, there's this back and forth between number of days and approvals and such um, on the UR end. But, you know, if a provider is submitting a UR for every single patient coming in, you know, to me, I usually say, hey, that's, that's kind of a red flag because it's highly unlikely that every patient needs UR, right? So is that something that you guys right. look at from a red flag standpoint? You know, are there because you've got these criteria built in. And so unless they meet that criteria, you're generally not looking for extra days. You'd prefer to see them step down care or whatever the case may be. So what we do is, you know, managing, I forget what the number is, probably close to 50 million members. We, we kind of have regional benchmarks based upon real data of, major of all of the major diagnostic groups and age groups and regions of the country. So we tend to know how long someone is going to need to be in the hospital for a first break schizophrenia in the Northeast region. And we give that amount of time based upon our experience in that given region with that particular diagnosis. If the facility needs more time, then, and, and a lot of times the programs are not even using the full, the full amount of time, but then there are other programs that will need to contact us and say, hey, I need more time. And those are the only cases that we do those reviews on. And those are called outlier reviews because we know that the stay is an outlier and we need to know why. So that's fascinating to me that you've got different um, geographies and in a previous discussion, you mentioned also different times of the year or different kind of seasonality oh, yeah. to it. Um, you know, from the clinical perspective, why do you think that is? It, it's it's pretty funny because as soon as the weather turns, <laughs> I think that our folks that are out on the street, that are living that street life, that are, you know, out there looking to uh, obtain substances and use substances, when the weather is bad, I think they get sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they want to they want to come into to care. Um, so there's a lot of seasonality. We also see a lot of seasonality around the holidays. When there's an expectation that you have to do something with your family or the holidays are here and there's a different vibe, a lot of people enter treatment around the holidays. It, it is what it is. And, you know, a holiday illness is depression. Um, we see a lot of we, we see a lot of depression and anxiety services uh, around the holiday. It's it's just, um, you know, and I know that we have seasonal affective disorders, you know, in certain certain states when it gets darker or when it's rainy, um, you know, more more people tend to react mood wise. But with substance use disorders, primarily um, the lull is over the summer. 
is the summer months. And it tends to ramp up not only when school starts, but also when the weather turns. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to see those those variations in seasonality in particular. And so do you think that weather connection is also why you see the regional differences? Oh, absolutely. Yes, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, right now, New, New York and the Northeast region are on a, um, you know, the weather's been nice, but we'll start to see as soon as the weather starts to get nasty in the Northeast, we'll start to see um, uh, 24-7 levels of care picking up. And that's also a driver that drives people to the warmer climates, to the, the Florida-based facilities, the Texas-based facilities, and the California-based facilities. I think they're also looking to, um, they're looking for those warmer, warmer climates. Sure. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We talked about a couple of the red flags, billing UR for everything, for example, uh, not including MAT or integrating MAT into your treatment programming. Any other or any other things specifically that you look at that would be a reason why you wouldn't be interested in uh, negotiating or doing a contract with a provider? I think that little or no historical utilization out of network I think if they're opening up a program where we already have a lot of in-network programs, I, if they are seeing a lot of our members, but there a lot of members are leaving AMA or they have high readmission rates, or we're seeing a lack of, a, a lack of uh, medication follow-up, or if it's a, you know, a plain vanilla program, you know, adult, uh, adult residential, but there's no specialty services, or they haven't, they're, they're not targeting a particular specialty population, then we're not going to, we're not going to saturate, we're, we're not going to, it's going to impact the existing network. Um, so we're, we're really looking for high quality specialty care. Got it. You can't be good at everything, right? You have to you have to <laughs> right. choose what you want to be good at. Look, there's a lot of emerging trends right now. We have issues with stimulant use disorder. We have we have issues with kids, um, and there's there's lots of other needs that are in the treatment community. I know that substance use disorder is a, a huge industry, but you really have to give the plan something else. Sure. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Is there anything, as we kind of wrap up here, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we haven't covered that you'd like providers to be aware of? Um, you know, no, I, I believe that providers have a really hard job and I, I really appreciate what they do. There are so many providers that want to do a good job, that look for um, their outcomes, what they could do better, and you know how they can partner with the plans differently. We appreciate that. I appreciate that. And you know when a when a provider reaches out and they say, "Hey, how am I doing? You know, what's the feedback?" I get feedback from from my 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 customers, my members, and I know how they're doing. And once in a while, I'll I'll call a provider and I'll say, "Hey, I heard this." You know, um, like you really, you really have to be careful what you charge up front or, you know, members think that the services are all inclusive. So if you're charging uh, extra to have a TV in the room, like you have to make that transparent to people, you know, because then I'm going to hear about it on the back end. I'm going to hear, hey, this provider, you know, they they told me I had to pay my entire deductible up front. And, you know, I know I've met 5000 of my deductible. Like so there's there's things that that providers may be able to do a little bit differently um, with with members um, because members have a different expectation of I'm seeing an in-network provider. Therefore, all services are all inclusive. Yeah, there's um, a whole nother topic, right? But yeah, there's definitely a lot of opportunity for providers to be more comprehensive on the front end, uh, particularly around financial planning. And I think it's something the industry is starting to look at more. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's really good advice because I, I do see it a lot as well. 
And and another thing that we're really focused on too is like we have algorithms that identify, you know, top performing facilities, but also medical has gone to measurement based care. Behavioral is moving to measurement based care and especially in the mental health realm. Right? The GAD7, the PHQ9s, all of these all of these instruments to show people are getting better. It's going to come to substance use care sooner rather than later, where we're going to be looking at the value of the intervention. And of course, it's going to be more on the outpatient side, where are people getting, are people getting better? Just because someone is staying on their medication, great, you know, we're happy about that, but are they getting better? Are they getting better? And I'm just going to give you one high-level anecdote. Um, actually, it was I was working on this case um, when I was with you guys, and we had a young gentleman who we put into the hospital, and he, he was he was really psychotic. Probably a first a first episode psychosis. He was 22 years old, and he went through a treatment program. And I had gotten a call from the family, the kids staying on his medication. He's getting one injectable and an oral, but the parents are telling me that he just hangs out in his basement. He's up all day. Um, excuse me. He sleeps all day. He's up all night smoking pot and on his computer. Now he's staying out of the hospital. He's staying out of the ER. We don't have any additional medical costs for him. Is that a successful treatment intervention? From a medical perspective, yes, right? Because he's stable. But from a behavioral perspective, no. And why do I believe that? Because the kid's not living. He's sleeping all day, up all night, on a, com on a computer, and he's not out in the world. There's not, he's not functioning the way that we would want him to. So we have to think about a different intervention that is going to engage this kid in life again. And it's been months since he's been out of the hospital. So that's another thing that the plan looks for is we're looking for the success of the intervention and this kid is going to need more services. And we want to get him more services because we want to bring him back into the world and engage in life. His parents aren't always going to be around for him. So what other services can we provide to the family to draw the kid out and into, and into the community again? And that's something that, that we on the behavioral health side look at. I hope that was helpful. No, it was super helpful. I'm glad you touched on it. So I think the question from the provider end, though, is how do you track that, right? So a lot of providers track sobriety outcomes for the most part, but what other outcomes do you recommend that they track that they can assess situations like that? And I, I think that, you know, with, with the kid getting out of uh, an acute care hospital and going to the outpatient, the outpatient connection didn't work. Like he's getting medication management and for a psychotic disorder, that's great, but he's not connected. You know, he's, he's sitting, he's, you know, sitting around in the basement, smoking marijuana and, and playing on the computer that, that other connection to care, whether it's substance use care or case management or a linkage to some community-based services didn't happen. And the, the hospital, I believe, did their job, right? They got him stable. He's no longer psychotic. They got him on, they got him stable on medication, but he needs more. And I would never have known about it had the family not reached out. Hmm. So that connection to care is, is really critical because that allows yes. you to get the, the feedback from the providers, ideally. And then, I mean, there's, there's even digital therapeutics out there that are trying to solve some of that too, right? So that, that seems like it has potential. So I really appreciate the, the time. I mean, it's, it's been phenomenal discussion, super helpful all around. If people want to get in touch with you, Deb, or Optum, what would be the best way to do that? Um, well, me, I could be reached at uh, deborah.nussbaum at optum.com. 
And um, I don't have a general phone number for Optum. I wish I did, but I do have a 24-7 substance use disorder helpline. Um, That's a helpline that we launched back in April of 2016 to help people connect to substance use disorder services. So I'd like to put in a plug for the SUD helpline. It's 855-780-5955. Anybody can call. It is strictly anonymous. You don't have to have our insurance. And it's just for anyone that is looking for substance use disorder care. So, um, you know, I appreciate uh, getting that, uh, getting the word out on the SUD helpline, 855-780-5955. That's great. And then what about the the provider portal? If they want more information, don't have it, where can they go for that? ProviderExpress.com. The providerexpress.com is where a provider can go and join the network, right? Our facility and all of our applications, if you go to providerexpress.com, you click on the United States uh, because we do have an international network as well. But if you click on the United States, you'll see along the side, uh, the right-hand side of the screen, You'll see join our network and you can click in there to join our network. And you'll also see there's a 60 minute training. There's a a 60 minute uh, self-paced online training for providers to um, learn how to do a star submission. Or you could request a um, a kind of a live tutorial. But the 60 minute is very comprehensive. So you can learn all about star on providerexpress.com. Well, again, thank you so much for all this information. It's greatly appreciated for the listeners out there. This is a Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.